Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, Andrew. Hi, good. Are you ready? You ready to talk about the one 0 win over Aston Villa again? Well, I didn't want to talk about last <laughs> week's. Uh, yeah, if we can do one 0 over Aston Villa again, what about Burn Leno at the end? Oh, oh I love so happy. That. He was so happy. Oh, there's those scenes and the fan Saka giving his shirt away. We're just going to do that every week, guys, just so you're aware. <laughs> That's the podcast from now until the end of the season. Hey, can 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 the guy or gal, whoever got Saka's shirt, could they give it back, please? Because it feels like a bit of a Samson's hair kind of thing going on, you know? Sure, Ever since he gave that shirt that away, shirt. nothing's gone right. So I'm afraid even if you've got it framed or what have you, you, you've got to do your duty to the football club and put things right. Give it back, please. I know. I know. Well, here we are again, Andrew. Here we are again. Um, Yeah, it's not been a good couple of weeks. What's it been? A couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. It's not been good at all. And, um, yeah. And Saturday, it teased us didn't it? It teased mm. us with the prospect of it being quite a good day mm. after Brighton completed their North London double. Um, Spurs, I think, yeah, really didn't touch turn up at all and Brighton were very good by all accounts. Opened the door and we were like, is that a draft coming through? We better close that door <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. It's fucking freezing out there. Shut Do that you know fucking about the door. heating bills at the moment? Shut that door! Crazy! Ah, <laughs> oh, it's like one of those videos where you know you see somebody walking uh, what, through what they think is a uh, you know an open door, and it turns out to be just a very clean glass door, and just like yeah. smack <laughs> straight into it. Straight. Well, that was into me it. on Saturday afternoon. I tell you, yeah. Did that happen was- in real life? Please. People are desperate. I think if it had, we probably would have won. <laughs> That's how it tends to go. But no, yeah. um, I couldn't watch the Spurs game because. Well, I didn't want to. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I saw a lot of people talking about it. Andrew Allen um, t- uh, sent me a, a text at about three minutes past two uh, or a little message and, and said, well, that's a turn up for the books. And I said, what, the team selection? And he went, no, Brighton have just beaten Spurs. And I was like, ah, that's good. But I, I, I don't watch Spurs. I never, ever watch Spurs games. Oh, I watched Ever. them when I think they might lose, but I thought they'd win that yeah, one. Yeah, but see, I did that earlier in the season. I watched them against Man City going, oh, this is going to be good. They're going to get fucking pasted here. I'll watch this. <laughs> yeah. 
and then I yeah. watched it, and they didn't. So that's it for me now. Never, I'm never watching another Spurs game again, unless of course it is a, a North London derby, and I reserve my right. I, to turn I wouldn't off. watch that to be honest. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to have to go to that, and uh, I think I'll be the guy blindfolded in the stadium, just like desperately trying yeah, to yeah. my gaze. Oh. But. Um, yeah, so they they lost mm. to all conquering Brighton, who are back in a big way, and um, wow, what an opportunity that presented! I thought about this. I was like, do you think the Arsenal players know? Do you know what I mean? Like, are they like you in the dark, going in completely unaware of the Tottenham result, or do they know? Are they they know. must know in the social media age. Of Even course. if Arteta's not telling them in the team talk, they know. Yeah, they're all on their phones, aren't they? They're all, you know, glued yeah. to their screens. I'm not saying that that's the only thing that their focus well, is on, but certainly, yeah. you know, they, they're human too, and they would be, uh, you know, taking a cheeky peek at whatever's going on in the world, and I guess they would you know, like to see Tottenham lose. So knowing that that's there, I don't know if that creates any sense of uh, complacency or anything like that or or more pressure or, or anything else. I, I think the job that we had to do against Southampton was the job we had to do against Southampton, whether they lost or not. But obviously, when they do lose, you can make their weekend much, much worse, which is what I would be inclined to do. Um, well, it was kind of... I think that Spurs result was a reminder that you know that th- this these teams are all fallible and um uh, uh, you know that that it's unpredictable to a certain extent mm. and that you know every although it felt like it was getting away from us uh, heading into the weekend something like that can happen and suddenly you might be right back in it yeah um if you can just do your half of the bargain which we couldn't which we did not do. Some people would say that uh, Spurs losing and then Arsenal losing is entirely predictable. But I know that there's, you know, that's kind of the easy way to go, isn't it? You know, of course we would do that when they do this. Um, yeah. But I mean, we're making that easy for people. At the moment. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't confident going into the game, don't get me wrong. Um, but can the Spurs I, can result I ask definitely... Why? Because, why? yeah, just because... From the perspective that, like, and I think we talked about this a bit last week, where, you know, we're, we were um, looking at Champions League for a good reason, because we've uh, played pretty well, we've been defensively solid, we've won some games. Okay, it hasn't been uh, handsome in terms of the margin of victory, but we've been winning the games. And then you lose a couple, and we have gone through little periods this season where we've lost a couple, but you're looking for the response. I mean... <sighs> I don't. I don't think it's a lack of effort or endeavor. Really, I don't think that's the issue or anything like that. But there is, I guess, a psychological aspect to football or sport or whatever it might be, where you're saying, "Okay, well, we lost against Palace. That's not good. Come on, lads. You know, let's get it together for the next game." And then the next game is is Brighton, and you're like, "Okay, well, look." These things can happen. Let's really fucking get it together for this game against Southampton. I was only confident in the sense that I felt like this team has shown enough from a, a if you want to just call it character point of view, to not get beaten again, even if I could acknowledge that there were issues with you know, quality and issues with players missing and what have you. But, you know, at the end of the day, and with all due respect, it was Southampton. You know, yeah, coming off the back of a big defeat as well, I know. Uh, which can have be a mixed blessing. Yeah. But yeah, um, why was I not confident? I guess that's the fan in me. I think 
you know, when we're winning games, I get sucked into a, a positive feeling that obviously we'll win the next one. And when we're losing them, I tend to believe we'll probably lose the next one as well. Mm. I think it's not necessarily a particularly rational position, but um, I did have a sense of foreboding. And I guess, like, the more I want something, the more I fear it won't happen. You know, like, mm. uh, when Spurs won, I was like, oh, the opportunity is so excellent at this point that inevitably life being what it is it will elude mm. me and us and yeah. so it proved but I mean yeah I mean we'll talk about the performance uh, in more depth but I, I, I think uh, what did you think of the starting lineup? I mean I, from what I saw I, did, I wasn't hugely online with it being the Easter weekend but you know this was kind of the sort of 11 that people expected or wanted I guess with Shaka out of the left back spot yeah well I mean I think the there was a common sense approach to the team selection like instead of moving around a load of pieces he put Nuno Tavares back in at left back uh who's a left back Granit Xhaka back in midfield because he's a midfielder and in the absence of Alexandre Lacazette, uh, he played Eddie Nketiah up front. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, it was a common sense approach to team selection. Um, I mean, where do I... Where, you know, I, I, I've i been critical of Lacazette um, and I think whether he'd been available or not, I would have liked to have seen a change up front just from the point of view that, like, you can't keep playing a guy who isn't doing it without changing something, even if. And I think that turned out to be quite apparent. The replacement that you have is not great either. You still have to try and do something. But I was, you know, I would have been very happy to see Lacazette on the bench, you know, because we don't have a great deal of depth in the squad. We need every senior player we can get at this moment in time. And, you know, just because I wanted to see him out of the team from the start didn't mean I wanted to see him out of the squad. So the fact that he was missing with COVID is another little bit of a blow, you know, on top of um, the, the Tierney and, and Partey injuries of late as well. It was, yeah. I think, uh, especially the way the game played out, you mm. know, with Arsenal looking for an equaliser, looking for a bit more presence in the final third. Um, you know, how much of that Lacazette provides, of course, is open to debate given his recent performances. But he certainly provides more than the alternative, which was basically nobody. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I felt that... You know, we talked about the possibility of him being dropped for this game at uh, some length last week, and um, I think that was possibly on the cards regardless. But like you, I mm. agree, his absence from the squad left us looking yeah. light. Very light, very light. And um, we might touch on that a, a bit later on when we, we talk about how we tried to get ourselves back into the game. It was, I think, relatively okay, if not particularly exciting. Um in the first half, there was. Um, I agree. It wasn't. It wasn't brilliant, but it wasn't terrible. Um, it looked like a team uh, trying to uh, sort of rediscover some uh, mm. sort of confidence in the game. Do you know what I mean? Like they looked like a team coming off the back of two defeats, but I thought they were more recognisably themselves in that half. Without being, I wouldn't. I'd stop short of saying they were good. But I felt like they had stabilised uh, pretty much until they just gave the goal away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think about chances and, and yeah. opportunities that we had. Um, I mean, the, the obvious one is, is the Saka um, chance. 
um, which came from Eddie and Kedia winning the ball high up the pitch, uh, Martinelli on the right-hand side and Saka uh, on the end of the cross. I mean, where do you stand on this one? Because when you see the replay, there's one replay where you go, well, my initial thought was, holy fuck, that's an amazing save. Mm-hmm. My second thought, having seen a couple of replays was, or seen the replay was, oh, there's a lot of the goal for him to aim at. And maybe if he kept the ball low, then Forster wouldn't have had any chance. But then you see another replay where when the ball comes in, he really does have to adjust his step because it's slightly behind him on yeah. his wrong foot and he's digging it out. And, you know, I, I can excuse or at least understand a lack of clinical accuracy in a situation like that because it's just like it's a few inches away from being one of those where he sweeps it into the bottom corner or he he takes it the way he took it, which is, okay, I've got to get it on target and get it out from under my feet. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a good chance and Ketia did well. I, I seem to remember... Was it one of the very early behind-closed-doors games that Nketiah scored against Southampton in, in similar fashion, nicking the ball off a defender? Um, mm. Right at the start of lockdown. I might be wrong, but I, I seem to recall that happening. Anyway, this time he played to Martinelli. You're right, the ball was a bit behind Saka. I mean, it's one of those where if you stop the video, there's an angle where if you stop the video at the moment Saka hits it, you know, 80% of the goal is available to him mm. to score. But I do also see your point that it is a slightly awkward one for him to take. Yeah. I think it's a bit unlucky in that if Martinelli, if Martinelli's pass is an inch ahead of where it actually lands, if Saka makes contact with the ball, you know, half an inch in a different place to the one that he does, mm. that ball ends up in the net, probably. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, the yeah. margins are, yeah. the margin for it being saved is quite fine and somehow he manages to find it I think it is a good save a really good save I mean any time a keeper keeps the ball out of the net yeah. in that scenario you know if one of our keepers doing it, did it we'd be hailing it so it's a great save it's a really good chance um, I think it was I think he yeah I think it was a bit unfortunate to be honest that we didn't get the goal there and, yeah um, that I mean that's a sliding doors moment um, because Big time. we've won Big time. 17 Premier League games this season, and in 16 of those, we've scored first. Um, yeah, we're much better when we, we score first. Well, and, and that sounds like a really obvious and reductive thing to say, but it's not always the case. It doesn't scoring first doesn't guarantee you a win, but not scoring first pretty much guarantees that Arsenal won't win, yeah, uh, which is a real issue. Exception, isn't it? It's a real issue because um, I, I, I look through the wins. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm being really stupid here because this is just occurring to me, but the 16 of 17 wins that we've scored first, I assume all the games we've lost, the opposition has scored first. Does that tally? I don't quite know how it is. How many games have we lost? How many times have the opposition scored first? Um, you know, there might've been some draws or whatever, but I'm guessing that when the opposition scores first, they pretty much always go on to win. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, there have definitely been games that we've scored first and lost. Um, like Man City at home, would that be one? Did we take the lead, Saka? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, all teams look. All it's not. Uh, all teams are better when they go ahead. But I think it's particularly true of this team. Why? Why do you think that is? Because when the Wolves game happened, um, there was that stat going around that this was the first time under Mikel Arteta. Was it the Wolves game? I think it was, where we've been behind at halftime and come back to win a game. Yeah, which is amazing, really. Um. I, I don't really know how to explain that because it sounds so extraordinary that a manager who's been here for whatever, two, two and a half years, uh, you know, hasn't been able to do more in that particular game state. I'd have to look again and see how many games there were like that because it might not be as many as we think. But it feels like it's almost like a psychological barrier at this point, doesn't it? Maybe. I think it might be more tactical. I think it might be more the case that when we get ahead, it creates uh, game states that suit our attacking players. Mm. So, you know, the likes of Saka, Martinelli begin to get more space in which to be effective, in which to be devastating. And before that, people like Aubameyang, mm. Smith-Rowe would be another. Whereas when we're behind and things are more compacted, more compressed, I think we struggle more. I mm. think we're less good in that scenario. Um and we get, you know, sometimes a, a consequence of that is the kind of, you know, crossing into the box without enough presence to really make the most of that. Um, so I think, yeah, there could be a psychological, I think there's a psychological element too. Maybe that's connected to youth and experience. Mm. I don't know. But yeah, I think there's also a, a tactical component. Um, and so, yeah, to go behind yeah. in the manner that we did was, was uh, and at the time that we did, yeah. I mean, man, what a bad, bad, bad time to concede a goal. And it sure was. It sure was. Yeah. I mean, it's just slightly reminiscent of last week, you know, when we got the goal yeah. against um, uh, Brighton, but it was disallowed. Before we get to their goal, can, can I just talk about how probably our set-piece coach needs... Um, I don't know if a solid thrashing is is the right way to put this, but there were two set pieces in really dangerous positions towards the end of the first half, within a couple of minutes of each other. And Cedric took both of them. And I know he's taking the corners from one of the sides, and, and clearly it's because they feel like his set piece delivery is is good or you know consistent enough for him to be on the corners from that side. But the two he took, um, and after the one he took last week where he just whacked it into the wall from a position um, that Martin Odegaard hit the bar with uh, in the second half, I'm just curious about um, whether this, oh, he just had a couple of bad deliveries, or is this something we should rise up and take arms against, um, you know, Cedric ever taking a free kick again? Because the one where he, he put it up, like one, okay, you can miss kick it, you just you just put it wide, it's terrible, it can happen. It shouldn't, but it can. But there was one where he went for goal when we had men in the box and he, he he took it from the wide position and tried to curl it in and just whacked it over the bar rather than, if uh, you know, put it in the, the danger zone, the corridor of uncertainty, whatever you want to call it. Um, I found that particularly frustrating. And, um, yeah, I just wonder what you thought about that. I mean, I did, and I tweeted about it and said, you know, I think I said it on the show last week, you better be bloody good in training. Um, it's difficult because we don't know, right? We don't see what makes them make that decision, that they must uh, 
have a logic for it. But I think I don't want to be too lazy and just be like, he's a defender. Why is he taking them? No. Maybe he's really good. You know, we've had seen Dennis Irwin and whoever else, you know, putting free kicks away from all sorts of angles. You took free kicks yes. as a centre-half oh, yes. in your day. Oh, yes. And I, uh, I, I am the example of, of, you know, why this could work. <laughs> Forget Ronald Koeman, it's, yeah. it's Andrew Mangan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they yeah, were good on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe the crowd got in his head a bit. I mean, he was getting a lot of stick off the Southampton fans. And that partic- that one he took from out wide where he appeared to shoot and it just sort of went over the bar. Mm. I sort of wondered if there was a bit in his mind of like, oh, sort of, I'll show them, which probably wasn't the right motivation going into the free kick. A lot of uh, guesswork on my part, but yeah. yeah. I, I, I Listen, they obviously see something in him. We're not really seeing it in games at this point. And I think Martin Odegaard, for example, has been pretty good on the set pieces front. I know it's from the opposite side, but I probably feel more confident having him or... You know, even a Martinelli stood over these uh, yeah. free kicks. I've got a natural bias towards players who, you know, can take score free goals kicks. and stuff. <laughs> take free kicks, well, call me crazy. Yeah, I know. I got it. I got it. Okay. Well, look, let's talk about their goal and yes. another slightly, not quite sliding doors moment, but just before Ben White gave away the free kick. And I, mm. you know, I don't want to go like too many passages of playback because you could just sort of. Uh, relitigate everything but he played a really great pass which the defender um, it was going through for Eddie and Keddie and Eddie made a good run actually and the defender did very 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 well and just cut it out but it was almost the kind of pass that uh, could have opened up the Southampton defence what what Eddie would have done in that situation there's a different question but he gave away the free kick we got it cleared then they got a corner and then he gives away. Uh, can I just say, there's been a few free kicks a little yeah. on that right channel recently that I've thought. I don't know if he needed to do that. Bit I, I know that there's a couple of passages of play on that they actually score, but mm. it is something I've picked up on. What do you think of how the goal itself transpired? Because I feel like, uh, and I've watched it again a good few times this morning. He got caught in two minds. Who, sorry? Ben White. When the corner comes in, he kind of gets clattered by Ramsdale or, or yeah. you know, in the... He gets his head punched off, basically. Yeah. And he's lying on the ground and he sort of is like, oh, I'm off the pitch. Oh, what will I do? And I think he should have gone either all in on the head injury or gotten himself up much quicker and back into position and, and closer to the defender, which sounds obvious. But I just wonder if he'd stayed on the ground in the penalty box holding his head, would the referee have had to blow up? Good question. It's hard to criticise the centre-half too much for their I instinct know, to get back on the pitch and yeah. defend the goal. I mean, I wasn't, No, I wasn't being of- critical. I just... Yeah, just one, if he one stays down, maybe that goal doesn't mm. stand, you know. Even though it is his own player. I mean, there must be a communication issue. I, I, you know, I, I, I do think Ramsdale basically punches Ben White in the head. Um, mm. And um, 
he might be a bit out of it. I don't know. You know, when he sort of gets to his feet, I wouldn't be surprised. It's big contact. And then he plays everybody on side, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. is that counting as our first goal we've conceded from a corner this season? Or because it's the I second don't think phase? so. Second phase, isn't it? It's hooked back in. And yeah. um, I mean, the only thing that was in any way enjoyable about that passage of play is just how annoyed Gabrielle is with the goal when it goes in. He fucking clatters the ball. I think it comes back off the post. I do like that kind of public display of just fuck this shit. Um, but I think I think what happened with Ben White is he got caught in two minds and he wasn't quick enough to either make the decision about to stay down or when he got back on his feet, maybe he's a bit dazed or whatever, but he just wasn't quick enough to close down uh, Bednarek. Um, anything on the keeper for the goal? I mean, I, I don't think you can really point fingers at a goalkeeper when a shot comes in from eight yards out. It's rising, heading towards the top of the net. He gets his hands up. It's one of those where, you know, a couple of inches to the other side and it's an amazing save, like Forster or whatever, you know. Um, But I wouldn't really put too much on the goalkeeper for the goal itself. Don't think so, but it is, you know... Forster keeps one out a bit like that and Mm. on such things the game... The game sort of hinges. Um, no, I think if you're going to have anything on the keeper, it'd be more about the communication that led to the collision with White, to be yeah. honest, than the save. Um, I think it is, like you say, if he keeps it out, it's a very he's done well because it's hit with real speed from close range. But it's just a terrible time to concede. And yeah, and, and you a know, punch. I was, I was, I was in the process of composing my half-time tweet about how I felt like Arsenal, you know, without doing particularly well, had kind of at least got a foothold in the game and something to build on. Mm. And then from nothing, and I think I'm right in saying it's from nothing. I mean, Southampton, I don't think offered any real threat. I would say almost at any other point in the game. Um, Mm. Had a goal. Yeah, and you... Yeah, it's always a sucker punch and it's a pain when you concede just before halftime. But when you know you're a team that doesn't really deal well with conceding the first goal or coming back from behind, you know, when you think about going in 1-0 at halftime with teams we've had in the past, you go, okay, well, this is not ideal, but I feel confident that we can score goals. I feel confident that we can um, get ourselves back into this. But I didn't really feel confident. I've just gone back and looked at the the stats for the second half. 83% possession for Arsenal. 90% pass success rate. 19 shots. Six corners. Um, I mean, it's not unreasonable to say that we absolutely dominated that second half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But did it feel like, you know, sometimes in a game where you're very obviously on top and you go, it's coming. Any moment now, the goal is going to come. The pressure is going to tell. They're going to crack. We're going to get on top and then we're going to turn the screw. It didn't really feel like that to me, even if the numbers suggest that maybe it was more like that than, than I feel about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think I'm a bit atypical in this, in that I felt we would score. I I was watching the game thinking, Arsenal get one here, for sure. I really, really did believe that, Mm. based on 
the sort of territorial advantage, the degree to which Southampton had kind of completely surrendered initiative, the amount of attacking players we threw on the pitch. Now, I think the fact that we then didn't is quite damning. Like, I think, you you know, we had a half to score a goal mm. and that was the only task. I mean, we didn't have to do any defending. We finished with basically two defenders on the pitch um, and a bunch of attackers and we just had to break down a Southampton side that, albeit in different circumstances, conceded six goals last week. I thought that was within our capability. Mm. Um, and we didn't do it. I, you know, I think that we had opportunities. Um, and I think the keeper made another very good save from Smith Rowe. But yeah, it didn't happen. It's, and it sort of needs to, really, in that situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no arguing with that. Um what do you put it down to? What do you what do you think is the issue? Is it a lack of quality? Because we've seen Smith Rowe, Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard score goals in the Premier League this season. We know that they're they're capable. Um is it is it the the missing piece, if you know what I mean? And and by that I mean the sort of focal point to your attack that makes those other players around him more effective, if if that makes sense. Because, look, I thought it was a chance for Eddie Nketiah. He had a couple of moments. There was that mo uh, one we talked about in the first half where he nicked the ball and there was another good run down the left-hand side where he used his pace and, and won a good free kick, which Cedric probably kicked onto the uh, roof of the stadium. But um, I didn't see enough from him in that role. I didn't see, I know, I know he's a different player from, like I said, he's not a drop deep, hold the ball up, lay it off kind of striker. He's a penalty box poacher. Well, nominally, we haven't seen much of that lately as well because he's, he's had some issues in, in that regard. But I still think that there are basics. Like, I think there is very obviously a quality problem when it comes to our center forward, right? But, I think there are basics that you can expect from a player at this level which can benefit the team, which I didn't see enough of from from Eddie. And I'm just talking about movement, um, security on the ball. I know, like, I was frustrated by Cedric consistently crossing the ball because it feels lazy to me. It feels like almost kind of hiding. What will I do with this? I don't know. I'll just cross it in. And there's no point banging in crosses to a five foot ten centre forward when he's got three central defenders around him and a goalkeeper the size of Fraser Forster. I mean, that's just dense, you know? But I also think he could have done certain things better himself. Um, and I wonder if that impacted what we could get from some of the other players and whether maybe it's just a case that when you place a massive burden on... 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds to score all your goals, there are going to be times where you come up short and pay the price. I think that's certainly true. Um, I thought Eddie, for Eddie, 
did okay. I honestly did. I thought that he ran... I thought he... In some respects, he offered more than Lacazette in terms of his movement in channels and things like that. I thought he was more mobile and that that at times gave us a different outlet, particularly in the first half. Mm. I think where he really fell down for me was I just felt like he didn't have that penalty box presence you know and when we're talking about crosses coming into the box or players looking to play one twos on the edge of the area I just felt like he was very kind of peripheral in those moments and and not really a a big figure in the game Mm. and like like we said at the top we had not a lot to come on to replace or to augment him um I do think that the striking situation is a big problem. I mean, my sort of uh, manifesto of misery about why (laughs) this is going wrong at the present time, it it does ultimately reflect a lot back to the January transfer window. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, I don't think we're sort of uh, changing our minds about that. You know, I think when it happened, pretty much every Arsenal fan was like, Christ, that's a big gamble that Arsenal have taken at that point. And, you know, the fear was that it would catch up with us. Mm. And for a while, it didn't. You know, we were winning games and things looked good. Um, But the reason we use language like it will catch up with us is because sometimes it takes time before you see mm. the problem. And I and I do think, looking back now, you know, when you look at the parts of the pitch we were talking about, centre-forward, centre-midfield, a couple of additions in those areas, not even necessarily like world-class additions, not even transformative additions, but reliable options in those parts of the pitch, I think would have really helped. And centre-forward, I think Partey's absence from injury is huge, but in a funny kind of way, I sort of feel like, it, you know, the chances of getting someone who's as good as Partey in January were pretty slim. Yeah, of course. But the chances of getting someone who was better than Eddie Nketiah, I think were pretty substantial. Yeah, I mean, that was always the thing. That was always the the sort of the caveat to what we did and didn't do in, in January. It's like, are you saying that with all your contacts in the world of football, with your scouts, with your... Um, uh, you know, technical director hat on and everything else, but there isn't a single forward out there who could be better than Eddie and Kedia. And and this is the other part of it because there was a lot about the Dusan Vlavic interest, and it's like, okay, we're going to try and sign the striker we really, really want. Whereas maybe the approach in January ought to have been, we know Aubameyang is going, going, gone basically. Um, I know that happened a bit late in the month, um, but I think they knew what was going but to happen. But did it though? Do you know what I mean? It happened in December, really. Yeah, yeah, that. you know what I mean? But like he was there. He was there and it was like the deadline day shit that w- when he went to Barcelona. So, But they knew. I mean, they knew yeah. in December, so they knew uh, before that. They've known about Lacazette for a long time and what their intentions are towards him. And I think if you're going to offer a player a contract, you'd have done it well before now. And the fact that it's always been a discussion about, well, how do we, um, you know, we'll discuss this at the end of the season. We'll see where we are at the end of the season. We'll see where we are. We'll see where we are. But like, you know, we can all read between the lines and we've all seen scenarios play out like this, where in all likelihood, 
Lacazette is going to go. Uh, You're loaning Flo Balagoon out to Middlesbrough, you know, in isolation. I don't think anyone can really complain about that because he needs to play and has needed to play senior football for a little while now. So let him go, let him play, let him gain the experience and let him develop as a player. That's on its own, not a bad thing. But maybe January ought to have been about, okay, we know Eddie's going to go as well. We know Lacazette's going to go. We know Aubameyang is gone. We can't get the number one striker in this window. Let's bring in the guy who we also need to be the number two striker. Let's target that guy. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the mistake. Um, and it's a gamble. Like you say, it's a gamble not to have done anything. And the thing is, gambles can pay off handsomely or you can lose your fucking house. And right now it feels like, you know, we're throwing our watch and jewels and everything into the pot, hoping against hope that, you know, the next card is going to win it for us. And it's uh, it's not a great position. Yeah. And and listen, there are multiple problems um, and reasons why Arsenal haven't won these last three games while they've lost them. But I do think putting the ball in the net, uh, you know, Scott, who does the by the numbers for Arsblog put out some interesting stuff about you know the the probability of the of goals that Arsenal would score based on the chances they created across those three games is substantially higher than what we've ended up with we've got kind of the slimmest pickings from what we've created and so you mm. have to look at that part of the pitch and like you said there's a, a big reliance on young players maybe somebody who's a bit more experienced um but I also just think an option like I just yeah. think a different option even I mean, alone. In the last 20 minutes of the game you know even a loan signing there had to have been somebody yeah. out there that we could have brought in on loan who you know might be just a fucking middle of the road 27 28 year old striker who you know isn't a great player but could come in and do a job and give you an option and maybe give you a different kind of option give you a different way of playing give you you know uh, Maybe people don't like it, but, you know, if you've got a bit of presence in the penalty box, then maybe the odd Cedric cross isn't just a complete waste of time. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's a different era, OK? But, you know, I remember an Arsenal team winning a double with <clears throat> Chris Ray coming off the bench or starting cup games and scoring important goals. Yeah. You know, having a variety of strikers to call upon you know, pretty much any of those Southampton forwards, just being able to call somebody like that off the bench and be like, you know, let's see what you can do. I mean, I know it sounds a bit like reductive, but I, I just think we left ourselves very, very light and we've, we're have we paying for it a bit. Um, so where, where do you think, where do you think, like, uh, criticism, if you want to call it that, needs to be... Um, where, who should we kill Well, for it's this? hard because no, no one's going to take sole responsibility. I know, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's an executive decision, like the manager, yeah. the technical director, the board, all of those things. They'll say, we make the decisions that we think are the best for the football club. But and it's done it collaboratively, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, who's who's on top? Is, is the technical director the one who says, you know what, it'll be okay, just go with what you have? Or is the manager saying, I need a striker, get me somebody 
And he's going, no, no, no. Or maybe the manager is saying, no, it's fine. I'd rather work with the small squad that I have. Uh, I've got a few options. Let's face it. We've got Lacazette. We've got uh, Inkedia. We've got Martinelli. I suppose had a push. We could use Nicolas Pepe or Smith-Rowe as a false. And I said, don't worry about it too much. We've got options. Let's keep our powder dry. I mean, we don't know, but I think... Well, the board or the owner said, yeah. we gave you 150 million quid in the summer. Yeah, yeah, um, that's also true. That's also true. So, you know, while we don't know... Um, definitively how that decision was reached, I think we can all say that it was a bad decision. Yeah, I, I think, genuinely, I think it's very difficult to kind of uh, single out an individual on that because we don't know. But we can say it was bad club strategy mm. or it looks bad club strategy right now. And, you know... <clears throat> There was an opportunity there, and to we we had to speculate to accumulate, and we chose not to do that. And I think that was a big problem. I think that was a a big mistake. Mm. And I wonder about, you know, I have to say, uh, I I I'm sure Arteta will cop some of the flat for it, but I don't necessarily buy that personally. I just look at everything he said about it's essential we maximise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every transfer window. I find it very hard to reconcile that with the idea that he said, yeah, let's just leave it. Like, I, I find that quite implausible, personally. I also don't understand why any coach would want that. I, I, I agree with that. Coaches want players, right? They always do. They're always pushing. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm not sure about his part in it, but I do think more broadly the the club, yeah... I don't. I don't get it. I think it was a. I think it was a great chance to mm. put the foot on the gas. And yeah, when we were in a strong position, and I and I always think back to that meeting. Sorry, just quickly yeah, up yeah. between the Cronkies and Arteta in America, and obviously we don't know the content of that. But I found it so interesting that they had that, and then ultimately. Arsenal didn't make a signing in January. Yeah, what was and part that? Of me wonders Go on, about that. So I was just going to say, like, I'm filling in the gaps in my mind, but part of me thinks was that meeting about kind of long term reassurance. You know, like we're not going to do it in January, and as a club, we all stand by that. And if we pay the price for it, so be it. Your head won't be on the block. I don't know, but yeah. I mean, I, maybe, I wonder about that. Now. I mean, it is strange because I mean, this was just before we went on that warm weather training thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you, uh, you know, and I know yeah. it's I know it's different when you're you when you're traveling first class or whatever it might be. A transatlantic flight is a lot more comfortable. You know, when you're lying down, you can have a good sleep uh, rather than sitting beside some guy who's drunk so much vodka he's pissed himself. Um, which actually happened to me on a flight to America once. Uh, it was disgusting. Um, but, you know, it's a long way to go just for a, just for a, like, hey, how are you? Without it being anything substantial, you know what I mean? And then you've got to fly yeah. all the way back. Then you've got to fly to Dubai and you've got to come back and come back again. And, and like, I think you're right in the sense that no manager or coach is going to say, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want a striker. I mean, I, why, why, <laughs> no. why, why would I? Um, and I think back to, you know, whatever else, whatever differences or personal differences that existed between 
uh, Aubameyang and Arteta at the end, whatever happened there, it doesn't alter the fact that until that happened, Aubameyang was our starting striker in pretty much every game. So Arteta's, um, it's not like he was unaware of his importance to the team or his quality. So then just saying, well, no, we'll let that guy go for, well, for whatever reason it was, but we won't do anything to replace him. I mean, you think about when Ozil, uh, and I know he'd been frozen out for longer, but when he actually left to um, Fenerbahce, we brought in Martin Odegaard on loan Mm. that month, you know, so we replaced him um, in the team, maybe a bit too late, whatever people want to criticize about that. So look, I'm not, um, I'm not here to excuse the manager um, on the results or the performances or or anything like that. But in terms of the squad building, I, I don't know. I don't know why you wouldn't want somebody or why you wouldn't try and insist on somebody. And and that quote where he did say, we want to maximize every single window. We, we minimized, we minimized. Yeah. In we January. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, not only didn't we bring anyone in, we completely stripped away depth and maybe like, uh, look, nobody's crying about Kalasinac. You know what I mean? But, yeah, we didn't do anything to maximize the window. Yeah, and there we was boarded some weird it up. Stuff. There was some weird stuff. You know, I still think the Callan Chambers one's quite weird. I still think that's quite weird. I agree. Um, like, why couldn't know, that not- have waited till the summer? Yeah, and you know, it, it's not like we haven't got issues at fullback. Um, <laughs> got big issues at fullback, and uh, I know we didn't at the time necessarily, but you know, his contract was expiring anyway. We could have triggered an extension. We didn't. All a bit odd that one, um, and and listen, I mean, listen. If you if you want to criticise the manager, I don't think the failure to sign someone in January is is the way to do it. I think you could you can certainly criticise the nature of the fallout with Aubameyang and you know his part in that. Um, I think that's up for grabs, but I do think I do think that the inability to mm add to the squad in January you know I'm not saying it directly cost us this game I'm not saying it directly cost us the Brighton game or the Palace game but do I think we would have had a better chance of getting the results we wanted in those games Mm -hmm. with those additions to the squad certainly yeah um yeah, and and so yeah, that that's my big frustration and unfortunately everybody saw it coming and it and if you thought when we were winning six games on the bounce and, you know, Bern Leno was being hugged by everyone and Saka gave a shirt away that maybe it wouldn't matter. It, I don't think it makes you a fool because, you know, it's caught up with us and that's what these things do. Mm. Um, you can resist it for a time, but eventually those chickens come home to roost and uh, it looks like the wrong decision at this point, for sure. No, I mean, it looked like the wrong decision at the time. We... We skirted around it. Yeah. And now it's been reinforced that it was the wrong decision and the wrong way to approach that particular window. Um, Because, yeah, 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 I think so. I think so. I think it was a real, you know, it feels like Saturday was a mischance. Spurs dropped points. We could have, you know, played catch up a bit. The real mischance may have been January. 
Mm. I do think that the, the, the path was open for us at that point. And especially when you look at what happened down the road at Spurs, they went and bought two players who have started pretty much every game for them mm. since they came in, played a big part in their upturn in form, Benton Kerr and, and Kulusevski. Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't require much imagination to kind of see the the difference between the two January transfer windows and no. how that's playing out. And actually, I mean, listen, all my frustrations with Arsenal, but a little bit of my frustration was with the Juventus because they not only bought Vlavic, who we were after, they sold uh, Kulusevski and Benton Kerr to Tottenham to help fund that mm. and consequently wouldn't let us have uh, Arthur, the midfield target we want. So uh, if we ever get back into the Champions League... We owe Juventus one. Fuck Juventus, I say. I still haven't forgiven them for Liam Brady back in 1980. Well, there you so, go. Yeah. This has compounded that. Grudges, um, grudges go deep, let me tell you. Um, just to come back to the yeah. game, I mean, I, my my sort of broad opinion about the Southampton game, it's interesting, you know, chatting to other fans, spoke to other fans who sort of watched the game or watched Match of the Day, and I know that's not always the best... Um, no, I don't know how anyone can do that when we lose. I don't don't get it's like... I just watched it, actually. I just watched Match of the Day now. I, I didn't watch it at the time. I've had enough distance now to watch it. And I do think that Arsenal were a bit unlucky against Southampton. I really do. I think that the way in which they conceded the goal, somewhat sort of haphazard and, you know, a bit of misfortune with what happened to Ben White, the way in which Fraser Forster kept certain shots out of the net... I do think we were unlucky to lose that one. More so maybe than Palace and Brighton. I Well, I think what happens is when you lose the third game on the trot, the performance doesn't count as much as the result. Completely if, agree with if, that. If that makes yeah. sense. And I think uh, yeah. really, the you know, in these three games, I think... The first half against Palace was bad. Really bad, yeah. And the first half against Brighton wasn't good because we were imbalanced because of Shaka playing a, a mm. left back. But I don't think... Like, the frustration with the performance um, against Southampton was end product more than could we control the game, could we play the game in their half... Yes, we did. We didn't have enough quality. We didn't have enough composure, maybe, at times to make the most of the territory that we had. But I don't think the Southampton performance was as bad as it felt because it's the result that's, you know, kicked you in the balls after two other kicks in the balls that have come before it. It's like, oh, that really fucking hurts now. I think that's it, exactly. I mean, it's cumulative. You know, you, it's the first time I think Arteta's lost three league games on the bounce and uh, it's not acceptable. Apart from the start of the season. Oh, yeah, sorry. So why have I, where have I heard that stat on I telly? I don't know. I, I think... Um, Maybe it's since then. Yeah, I don't probably. know. Probably. I don't know. No, I think it was the stat that it's the first time Arsenal have lost three successive games twice in one Premier League season. Something like that. <laughs> That's a lot worse of a stat, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, anyway... It's not, you know, it's not okay for Arsenal to lose three games on the bounce. And that's a completely valid mm. frustration. I just, uh, yeah, I just think it's sort of interesting. Uh, and I guess all the more frustrating because I think, you know, the performance wasn't as bad, but it sort of doesn't matter at this point. I mean, mm. 
you can't be losing three games on the spin. And no. Yeah, we played poorly in the first half against Palace. We played really poorly in the first half against Brighton. The other times we've done okay, but we haven't we haven't put the ball in the net. Yeah, we're just I mean, missing. It's, we're missing. It's firepower. Yeah. Firepower. And you know the stats may say, oh, you'd expect Arsenal to score more goals given the chance they created, but well, that's what quality forwards do. They yeah. put the ball in the net more than you might expect. Yeah. And um, we've not had that. And, no. yeah, so it, going around the houses a bit at this point, but it, it is uh, frustrating and also alarming because the next week of fixtures, yeah. <laughs> you know, this was the easy bit. Yeah. Um, not I, easy, but these were the winnable ones. I know, you know what you mean. I know what you mean. And look, I, I, I like to think that this um, podcast is is very collaborative, but sometimes... I feel like I need to make uh, an executive decision. Yes. And on that basis, I- I'm announcing the uh, retirement and redundancy and uh, melting down of the Predictatron. <laughs> <laughs> we, will ne- <laughs> we will never hear or see from it again. We will uh, eliminate it from our memories. It's a thing that maybe happened, maybe it didn't. Maybe, no, maybe it didn't. So it's gone. I watched a movie last night. Have you seen The Big Short? Yes. About the financial crash of yes. to sort of 2007, 2008. Yeah. Which is very good, actually. I really enjoyed it. And I know nothing about um, numbers or money. Um, and it deals with that quite skillfully. But there's a bit in it where they're talking about investments and any financial person listening will be rolling their eyes at my attempt to explain this. But they talk about kind of human nature is that if something is positive and it's happening, we kind of expect it to keep happening. Um, and that's reflected in our in our investment habits. Right. Um, so some people make a lot of money basically betting on bad things happening because, you know, we don't... They're inevitable. As a species. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as a species, we tend to sort of shy away from that. We tend to kind of be a bit positive in our outlook. And I, and I was watching this thinking... There is no greater example of that than the Predictatrons that people have, have been doing the rounds, you know. Um, pretty much, I don't think, it, I, I, I would be as staggered if you could find me a single Arsenal fan who would have predicted three losses across these three games. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, um, and someone did ask us as well, could we predict the results of the West Ham, Man United and Tottenham no, games? No. They, they're going to win them all. They're going to win every single one of them. <laughs> And that's as much as I've got to say on the matter. So <laughs> if that doesn't do the trick, I don't know what will. Mm. Shall we yeah, take I a break? Do. I think so, yeah. yeah. I think we'd better. We'd better. Let's take a break. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an ArsBlog member on Patreon, which you can become by going to patreon.com forward slash ArsBlog. A reminder that every penny from our Patreon this month is going to UNICEF to help children across the world impacted by war and conflict. We can give them education, uh, medical care, and lots more besides so patreon.com forward slash arsebug your money this month will go to a very good cause from there james the uh, first question comes from or d and he says the next three games look winnable but am i wrong to be worried about us picking up zero points and scoring one deflected long-range shot surely that won't happen <laughs> winnable i mean i, I, I mean, I'm, that- I'm doing the aston villa Sorry. Oh, I see. I see. I see. (laughs) I just thought that was quite funny. It is funny. Yeah, it is funny. Um, I have an actual question, I'm sure, as well. Um, Sorry, I'm still thinking about the next three games, uh, the actual next three games. I'm panicking slightly. Yeah, yeah. go on. Give me your actual question. Uh, From Lombardo, he said, I've had a brief look through the stats. We've scored six headed goals in the league with only three coming from open play. We attempt on average 17 crosses per game, but attempted 31 against Southampton. If I, the lowly armchair fan, can find these stats easily and can recognize this tactic is ineffective, why hasn't Arteta? I'm a little bit cautious about the crossing analysis, and I've done a lot of it myself. Crossing or analysis? The crossing analysis, I do think that it's... Listen, they're good stats to make an argument, but I'm not sure they're quite as damning as they sound, personally. Basically... Yes, we're probably slinging too many crosses, but, you know, that implies all 31 of those crosses are kind of lofted seven feet high into the air, which I'm not necessarily mm. sure is accurate. And I think what happens is we we lose games. I remember the North London Derby last season being a pertinent one, and it will by full time we'll have 30-odd crosses and we'll go, this is crazy, absolute insanity. But, like, it's not like from minute one we're just slinging it into the box. It's a product of game scenarios and game state Mm. it's not like Arteta goes out and thinks what we must do today is 40 crosses I don't think that's what's happening so I I do think that's sort of worth saying yeah that said I think that the crossing was 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 more noticeable and more bad in this game more bad Um, badlier badlier I think part of that in the first half is because 
I think he did something quite unusual. Which is, he played Saka and Martinelli on opposite flanks. Yeah, um, that was something we didn't touch on in the first half, and I actually yeah. meant to ask you about it. I mean, my fairly obvious um, answer to that is that he felt that Saka would offer a bit more protection to Nuno Tavares. And I'm actually, while I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that seems like it was the the rationale to me. And just uh, curious as to what you thought of, of Nuno's performance. I wanted to bring up in part one, actually. I actually thought he did okay. I thought this was sort of what he needed to do, if you see what I mean. I didn't yeah. think it was great, but I thought it was like conservative enough that... He built himself a platform from which he can play the next game. Do you know what it was? It was the individual um, deployment of, you know, when a team gets absolutely fucking hammered in a game and they say, right, next game, we just do not concede a goal. We don't concede. We just like shut up, shot, whatever it might be. And on an individual basis, I think that's what he did. He played conservatively he played safely at times which you know may or may not have helped us but you can understand why he did it from a personal perspective like do not make a mistake don't get caught out of position don't give the ball away cheaply in the second half he had a couple of moments where he was a bit more adventurous and maybe they said to him look get a get a good first half under your belt let's you know, consolidate, and then you can try and push on a bit in in the second half. And of course, game state I think demanded that we get a bit more, a bit more from our players pushing on. He he had a couple of shots, I think. Um, but I thought, you know, in general, he he put in the kind of performance he needed for himself and for the manager. I think that I saw a bit of criticism saying maybe he's been too conservative. I think you've got to bear in mind the context and. I thought that it was encouraging that he could kind of rein it in um, mm. and play a bit more of a kind of six, seven out of ten. Um, yeah, I thought he did exactly what he needed to do, and I think he'll start the next game as a consequence. Just going back to the crossing, I do wonder if maybe that affected the amount of times we saw Cedric crossing in the first half because he didn't have Saka on that flank, who's much more of a combination player than Mm. Martinelli. So I do wonder if maybe he found himself with less uh, options or less, you know, natural understanding. Uh, Martinelli was going in field a lot, which meant Cedric was kind of had more of an overlapping role. But yeah, it is still frustrating. I do accept that, especially when we haven't got someone to aim for. And, And I think that comes back to the the centre-forward piece, you know, mm. and the failures to do something about that. I mean, without wishing to have the whole conversation again, if you're talking about a loan signing or someone who might have made a difference, somebody who's over six foot would have been pretty useful. Yeah, no question. And look, I think just to 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 finish up on this one, I found the Cedric crossing frustrating. And I think Mikel Arteta probably did too, which is why he took Cedric off first. Like, that tactic was not True. working. I'm not sure that Cedric crossing that often is in the plan. I think sometimes he just he doesn't have anything else to his game. That's pretty much all he's got when he gets into the final third. So he likes to cross the ball. So he does it, um, whether he should or not. And I think there are occasions when he definitely should not. Uh, he was first to come off in, what, about an hour in, a little bit? A little bit before. Mm. 60 minutes. Cedric off, Smith row on. Um, and I don't think it was just because Cedric was crossing all the time, but I think it played a part. 
Yeah, and I think I think that's very fair, yeah. And, and it wasn't productive on the day and, and it probably did play into him coming off. Mm. Just on Nuno, by the way, he was conservative, but there was one moment in the first half where, I don't know if you remember, Martinelli sort of cut in onto his left foot and had a shot that was beaten away. And it actually mm. came about because Nuno had uh, picked up the ball in kind of central space about 30 yards out. And that's the kind of good part of his attacking game that... Mm you know, had, had impressed in the first half of the season. So I was encouraged to see that. Um, he'll have a big test if he plays against Chelsea, if Reese James plays, because he's been absolutely flying this yeah. season. Um, so let's see how he comes through that. But I, I thought he gave himself a, a platform, like I say. On the, on the subject of fullbacks, uh, ACV, who's at A. Cruz Vidal on Twitter, says, Morning, gents. Love your work. Was Takahiro Tomiyasu ever real? Or like the plot of an M. Night Shyamalan movie, did we all imagine him? <laughs> it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? It feels a bit like that. Um, He'd been gone a long time. Mm, too long. Too long. Um, it's, uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those that's slightly underrated in terms of... Uh, in terms of... Um, how much of an impact it's had on the team, even on a gradual drip, drip basis. I think teams are looking at us down the right-hand side and getting a bit more joy out of us than they did when he was in the team. Definitely. Uh, I mean, um, I remember when he was flying, um, getting questions on the podcast saying, is Tomiyasu the most important player in the team? And, you know, if we were to protect one player from injury, would it be Tomiyasu? And that may have been overstatement, but yeah. it's almost at the point now when people talk about us missing players, they go, of course, you know, we're without Partey, Partey and Tierney. Yeah. We almost forget yeah. Tomiyasu is just sort of disappeared. He's fallen off the face of the earth. Um, so it wasn't really a sort of, you know, I don't expect an answer. I mean, we don't, we, there's obviously a medical situation there that we're not, uh, well, that's pretty significant. I mean, he's been out with two calf injuries for months, but... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's they, been a big loss. They did have the Southampton game as a kind of marker for yes. for but his potential before. return. Yeah, we have, and the you know the, I think the last international break was actually a marker where we were saying, okay, he's not going away with Japan, and they can get him fit uh, and everything else. Um, I mean, I wonder what the expectation is of his return this week. Fixture against Chelsea is probably. Well, it feels like it. Could be too much too soon, but um, I mean, he's not even been back in training, so yeah. I don't know. I'm not I confident. Can't see him playing against no. Chelsea, no. Um, over to you. Uh, the part tier is over uh, on the Discord, says. Oh, that's good. He says, Do you think that Martin Odegaard is suffering the most from Partey's absence? From what I can see, he's still getting into the space between midfield and defence, but without Partey, the passes aren't finding him. Sambi and Shaka just can't pick him out quickly enough as their passing is too slow. Hmm. You, I think... I don't wish to kind of overstate it, but I think the whole team is suffering from Partey's absence. Mm. his ability to move the ball quickly and directly up the centre of the pitch. Yes, Odegaard is one of the big beneficiaries of that. But I think so are the likes of Saka, Martinelli, you know, even Lacazette. I just think that he's the connecting piece. And against Southampton, if you had a criticism of the performance, apart from the finishing and the penetration, the final third, 
I think it would be just that. You know, did we move the ball quickly enough to get it to our promising attacking players in space? So, yeah, I think Odegaard is suffering, but he's not alone in that. No, and- I agree, but I do think I, I, I would agree with that contention that he is... Maybe, Maybe the, the yeah, because that that sort of verticality that we had in midfield was that part a Odegaard right channel um, facilitating Saka in a way was a really important part of what we did very well, and I, I think there's something to the idea that you know Odegaard uh, was in space quite a lot. There were a number of times I saw him in the game uh, against Southampton in that pocket looking for actually I think it was I was watching on uh, Premier Sports here in Ireland they had Gary Breen who was a co-commentator who actually remarked on it as well like they've got to get the ball into um, that space between the midfield and the back four between the Southampton uh, midfield and back four into Odegaard who was in there looking for it and he didn't get the ball enough Uh, I don't think it was our only problem Um, and when you look at again when you look at the stats in the second half um, you know, it's not as if we didn't have opportunities or shots or chances or whatever it was. It wasn't a wasn't to do with the quantity, but probably the quality of those chances wasn't as high as it could have been. Yeah, that's it. And you know, when you when you don't make those passes early, you leave yourself facing a mass defence, and that's not where Arsenal are strong. So, yeah, I, I think. Um, I mean, that connection, that Odegaard party partnership, I think has been pretty key Mm. to what we've done. And I think you can include Saka in that almost as well on on that kind of right-hand side. There's almost been a triangle at times. Um, And we miss him. We miss him dreadfully. Mm. No doubt about that. Um, hmm. What about this question? Semi-aquatic on the Discord. At what point do we have to acknowledge that what we've been experiencing over the past couple of games are just the growing pains of a young team? Uh, We are underperforming against our XG and of the goals we've conceded recently, our youngest players like Tavares and Sambi have been caught out of position. I'm not excusing the pace of play, but I can accept these youngsters have been forced into extra minutes because of injuries and are bound to make mistakes and learn on the job. I mean, I think that's true, but it comes right back to our discussion about the January transfer window and squad management and, and how the squad has been put together. Mm. Um, even the most frustrated fan would acknowledge that young players are going to make mistakes. Like, let me just sort of throw this one into the mix as well. Yeah, go on. It's also from the Discord from uh, Ordee, who says, uh, in the statements pod, I was going to say we overrate the current abilities of our young players, but chickened out. So here's a question. Have we overrated how good they are right now? And I don't think it's necessarily an issue of talent or potential, but consistency. So young players, I think, inevitably are going to be more inconsistent than senior players, uh, you know, of, of similar caliber, right? Um, that is an inevitability when you've got a young squad. There are going to be games where they don't produce and you need senior players to to step up and, and take the lead. And that, I think, has been part of our problem this season is that the senior players haven't done quite enough to augment 
what the young players have brought us. So I don't think we're overrating the young players. What I think we're doing is placing too heavy a burden on them. And then when they don't produce, we then question the the quality rather than the burden that has been placed upon them, which I think, personally, I think is the bigger issue. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think inconsistency goes hand in hand with young players. And... I think everybody accepts that. I, it's difficult to answer, do we overrate them? Because you're sort of, <laughs> you're having to arrive at an idea of how we as a fan base collectively rate them. Mm. Um, and I'm not, I, I don't think we do though. I think the talent is evident. And in fairness, they have delivered on multiple occasions this season. I think you're right. We don't augment them with the right senior players. And maybe there's too much, too much uh, responsibility on some of these young guys uh, and maybe that does catch up with you. Mm. And I, th- and you know, the original question I asked was about the likes of Sambi and Tavares coming in. I think that's a bit of a red herring, really. I think it's more about, have we asked too much of Martinelli, Saka, Smith mm. Rowe to carry us over the line? Uh, mm. The answer may ultimately be yes. I think that's right. Um, let me ask you this one then. It comes from Vinith R. Pinglay, who's at Vinith R. Pinglay. I hope I'm pronouncing that okay on Twitter. Said, what do you make of uh, Lacazette's comment? And it's time he's talking about uh, how he's in discussions with a lot of clubs. Uh, his door is open. He wants to play Champions League football again, etc., etc. How do you view those comments and also the timing? Can you... Uh, deal with them separately do you think it's an issue don't think it's a, for me personally it's not a massive issue I accept that for some fans it will rub people up the wrong way undoubtedly um, maybe the timing is a little bit ill-advised to be to be honest to me it just says he's probably going like yeah I don't think you would talk in that way if you thought this ends with me signing a new deal at Arsenal mm um, you know, he's talking in that way to alert clubs uh, of his availability and to create the sense there's a big market for him. It's a negotiating position. And... Yeah, it's as uh, old as time, isn't it, really, when players yeah. get to this point. Um, yeah. And, and, and you know, uh, is it healthy for a club main striker to be in a position where he's got one eye on his next contract? No. I don't think so. No. I think that's the issue. I don't really have an issue with Lacazette looking after his interests. I think that's kind of fair enough. I mean, you know, he's out of contract. But should we be in a position where we're relying on a player who's already thinking about their next move. Mm. I don't think so. But no, that I don't, comes I don't back to what so we've talked about all through the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, I know it will rub people up the wrong way. And I think when you've scored two goals from open play all season, you're talking about going to a Champions League club. Of course. People yeah. are going to go, yeah, right, mate. Um, what I would say, though, is like, it is just a player talking about his future. They often do things like this when, um, you know, when it gets to this point of a season, I would say that the interview that he did, I think it was with Canal Plus, was Mm. probably arranged a couple of weeks ago. Um, Maybe it was even done, you know, a week or so ago. And the context of these comments, 
is very much informed by the results that we've had. I mean, if we'd won those games, whether he'd scored or not, I don't think people would be taking any real umbrage, umbrage at yeah, them, yeah. you know, but because we're in the middle of this sort of three-game little slump, um, they, they don't go down look. well. It's, no, it's, it's not, not a good, good timing. Look. But I don't think, like, he's sort of rung up and said, hey, I just want to... We've lost a couple of games here. Do you think I could go on TV and talk about my future just to annoy everyone? I don't think it's that. It's just, you know, one of those things. Yeah. I've got a really uh, bleak question here from someone who's, um, you know, taken these defeats really to heart. I think I should do it. Okay. It's from the Discord, Zion Delaney. Hello, gents. Awfully morning to you. Oof. Bit of a long one. Is it safe to say there hasn't been any tangible progression this season? We have just four more points than this time last year. We played 31 games thus far and conceded 37 goals, whereas last year we had scored 38 goals and conceded 39. We're on to score less than an already abysmal amount scored last season. We're now in sixth and in real danger of slipping further, etc., etc., I love Arteta and desperately want him to do well, but it seems like things are going from bad to worse at an alarming rate. Feels like we've missed a huge opportunity to capitalise on other teams doing so poorly. Um, I'm actually going to cut some of this. I know that's very pessimistic, but it's hard to see it any other way. Injuries have been unfavourable, but other teams also suffer from them, but don't seem to fall apart like us. Even Southampton fielded a seriously weak team. Do you think that Zion Delaney is right, Andrew? How, is it safe to say there hasn't been any tangible progression? Embrace the dark side, my son. <laughs> I know. I think we need to throw this guy a rope ladder. <laughs> I look. I I I get it. Like I completely get it because when when I think about these last three games and when I think about what lies ahead, you know, with some very very difficult fixtures. It's very easy to to get on board the good ship Zion Delaney, right? Uh, I mean, I understand it completely. But all I can say is like three weeks ago, we were talking about Champions League. We were looking at a bright future. Personally, I can't speak for anybody else, but I've been... Um, I've enjoyed this season more than I have done previous. I like the players. Um Maybe some of them not as much as I used to. But no, you know what I mean? I like the players. I like the team. I think I wrote wrote about this today in the blog is that like there's a, um, you know, when you lose a game, when you lose fixtures as a fan, you're obviously gutted. But I, I, I feel bad for for these players too because I really want them to to do well because I feel like there's something we can get behind. And I'm not saying this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater or anything like that, because I fully understand like when you lay it out like that, it doesn't sound fucking good at all, but uh, I know, well, I think I know what I've seen this season and I've liked it. So I have to try and keep myself in check in that regard. But I do, I do think now that there are certainly some, some dark clouds looming on the horizon and it's a an, an example of how quickly things and the mood can change in football that you know a few weeks ago this it felt kind of unthinkable that we would be so downhearted and maybe in another couple of weeks we'll look back and say well the variances and vagaries of football they lift you up they bring you down again it does feel though like we are a team 
under Mikel Arteta where confidence and belief fluctuate to wide extremes um, and that we're on the brink of something terrible and we manage to sort ourselves out and we're on the brink of something great and we fuck ourselves up. Uh, and yeah. I, I think that's part of the reality of life under this manager. And I don't know. I get, I get why some people might be thinking, well, that's no way to live. That's no way to experience football. Um, but tangible progress, I think I've seen some of it. Maybe not as much as I thought. Maybe not as much as we would like. But I've definitely seen things this season that are worth acknowledging as good and uh, things that we can build on and everything else. But like, talk to me in a couple of weeks. And if we, if we don't get results against some of the teams around us, it's going to feel very, very bleak indeed. No question. No doubt. Mm. What do you think? Yeah. I, I, I disagree with this sort of questions premise that there's been no progress. I, I, it probably won't surprise anybody to hear that I don't feel that way. I think there has been, and I think we've played better football. We've got young players blossoming rather than players, you know, heading towards the end of their career. Sure, yeah. Um, Those are things I've seen as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think, and, and actually, like as you said, on a, from an emotional perspective, I've really enjoyed most of the season. To be honest with you, like I. Mm. I've enjoyed watching this team. I've enjoyed the atmosphere at the ground, the football that we've played. By and large, it has been positive. And I think I think for good spells of the season, we, we've played above expectation. We're now playing below expectation. Um, there's no doubt about that. Mm. But So I, I don't feel like there's been no progress. But I, I, as I said last week, the way you finish matters. It mm. really matters. And all teams lose games. Like, you know, Spurs lost to Brighton this week. If these three results in the last week were spread across the course of the season, they would be disappointing, but their impact would not be so great. It's the fact that all the momentum and positivity has kind of been sucked out of us in one go. Yeah. That feels so dreadful. And and at a time when it has, you know, seemingly greater consequences. Um, so how we finish the season will really, really, really matter. And yeah. I think how we fare in some of these big games. And they're big games. United, Chelsea, West Ham, uh, Spurs. Big, big matches. Mm. I think if we, you know, if we come away from all those with nothing, then... You're right. Of course, that's going to impact the mood. I think the mood. I think if we come out of them okay, I'm not even saying well. If we come out of them okay, I think the mood will stabilise a bit. But mm. yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a difficult season to analyse. I think it's been quite a weird season, and um, I don't know how it's going to end. Yeah, like I, how you end a season really does matter. It really matters. Of course, um, really does. You know, and that's... It's often the way that you can make a, an assessment about a team, a manager, its capabilities and everything else. It's like, how do you do when when the spotlight's on, when the pressure's on at the business end of the season? You know, can you grind out the results? Can you... 
keep your cool? Can you not lose games that really, even if you shouldn't, uh, if it's too presumptuous to say you should win them, you, you definitely shouldn't lose them, uh, particularly in the manner in which you've lost them, you know? Yeah, like you can take the same set of results and, um, you know, the same amount of wins, draws and losses and arrange them in such a way that, you know, you can finish really strongly and it feels like a season of progress or you can finish badly and it can feel like, oh, we've really collapsed and it's gone backwards. You know, it's... it's this is... Uh, Rightly or wrongly, this is judgment time. Mm. Here's a question uh, from the Discord. Um, boom, 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 boom. Uh, Zed Quinners, who also says, awfully morning. He said, one, five at the back. Let's not get beat for the remainder of the season. Viable option? I love Mikel, but I think my bit, my biggest criticism is his inability or stubbornness just to play a system that works best for the players rather than play players in a system he wants to keep long-term. It's clearly not working right now. So, I mean, are we in that sort of a... Are we in that sort of a place right now where you you approach Chelsea as a... Like we talked about earlier with Tavares and like when a team gets a pounding... You've got to make sure that you don't lose the next game, come hell or high water. Yeah, I think so. If that's what if that's what Mikhail thinks would get us a point at Chelsea or whatever it might be, then he's got to do it. Like this is a time for short termism. Mm. If there, if you know, this season has not been about short termism. We've made long term decisions in terms of transfer strategy, in terms of team selection, picking younger players over seemingly more experienced ones. Um, we've had one eye on the future all the time. We've got like half a dozen games left, or whatever it is. Mm. This isn't that time. This is get some points on the table, especially off the back of three defeats. So I don't know if three at the back is the right way to go, but if it happens then mm. so be it. I just think we need to do everything we can to get a result at Chelsea. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think that we we are probably going to be... I wonder if we might see someone like El Nenny come into the team on Wednesday, to be honest, just to do that experienced midfield job, which may not make us the most progressive team, but might make us a little bit more secure defensively. Um holding in maybe back three wing backs, El Nenny and Shaka, it's not exciting. But if you're going to Stamford Bridge on the back of three defeats, you know, are you I mean Arsene Wenger was often criticized for going and not paying any attention to context or the opposition and just picking the most attacking team he could pick. Um and that worked out badly a few times. So I wonder if there might be an element of, of pragmatism uh, to that one so yeah uh, I, I, yeah it wouldn't surprise me wouldn't mm. surprise me me neither I've got another couple here um, go on let me just uh, Gunranian on the discord uh, Gunranjan sorry says do we need a football person on top of Arteta 
and Edu to hold them accountable for the decisions they take. And he talks about uh, the January transfer window, which we've obviously uh, discussed, um, leaving us with just like I said, and, and Eddie and Kedia. He says, for a club of uh, the stature of Arsenal and its ambitions, I feel this is a really major, if not sackable, mistake. We can't be a place where coaches come and experiment with stuff without any repercussions. There has to be some sort of accountability. Um, and I just wonder about that, about a, another football person on the executive committee, or do you think they're happy with the structure as it is? Mm, don't know. Uh, I'd be a bit surprised if it happened just because I think the way the club see it is that they place huge trust in Arteta and Edu and Per Mertzaka and they want to keep that kind of trio as the football authority within the club. Um, but I would be open to it. I mean, when you look at the board... And the board for a long time at Arsenal was kind of like, I don't think anyone likes the word ceremonial, but not particularly active or present or having a great deal of influence on sort of day-to-day matters. And that has changed a little bit in the last couple of years. Mm. You know, Stan and Josh are obviously on the board. Then you've got um, Tim Lewis, who is very influential in in sort of running the club, even Lord Harris has in the last kind of 12 to 18 months taken a more active role addressing things like club culture, you know, in terms of like staff as a workplace. Um, David Ornstein did a story yeah. about some consultants coming in. To, we, had a, to, we had a question about that, um, which I'll ask you afterwards. Go on. Okay. So, so basically I, I think I, I was sort of always guilty of kind of writing off the board and thinking, well, it's arson. It's Arsenal who does everything and the board is just sort of there as a buffer. But I think the board, um, their place in the structure maybe is a bit more solid than it has been for a few years. And I do think there would be some value in an addition at that level who was maybe someone with more football experience. I definitely think that. So you're basically um, saying that the uh, the board members are kind of all Lacazette and we need a new striker. <laughs> I, well I guess uh, yeah I mean look I, I guess that what you would say about the four men who constitute the board is that football is not their expertise you know mm. uh, Stan's a real estate guy Josh has a uh, does have now an extensive background in sport but and beards. he's a relative newcomer to football and Tim Lewis is a corporate lawyer and Phil Harris is from the carpet business and there's some good business minds there I don't doubt that but complimenting them with a football mind yeah seems like a an obvious step to me mm. it what, was, what do you think um, I think the more football knowledge and expertise you can bring into a football club the better um, yeah like look at you know European clubs Bayern Munich Ajax they pack their clubs out with people who know football right yeah yeah and and look that, that's not to say that there aren't people at Arsenal who um, know football but what kind of influence do they have um, I mean I think the, the, this is probably a long discussion for another day but I think what what's sort of interesting slash scary about this current 
project, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. is just how reliant we are on Arteta and Edu in particular being good. Oh, yeah. Because yep. a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the the planning and everything else is coming from them. And it's not quite the same as like having the single point of failure that we might have had in the past uh, under Arsene Wenger, if you want to call it that. But it's like if, if they go, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be um, – uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Like, of course, their jobs are dependent on their own performances, right? But then how far back or how close are you to square one again if those guys who've come in and said, we need to do this, we need to do this, we've identified these problems. I think whatever else you might say about Mikel Arteta, he certainly identified some problems with the club and how it was being run from a footballing perspective. And people might scoff at the idea of culture and and all of that kind of stuff, but we can all remember that game against Man City where he was sitting on the bench looking at Man City, take us apart, 3-0 win at the Emirates without even having to break a sweat. And you could see that something was fundamentally broken slash missing with Arsenal Football Club from a footballing perspective. And at least identifying and acknowledging that is a step forward in a way. And he's done that now. The wider question and the wider discussion about his own performance, the results, all that kind of stuff, I think is entirely valid. But it places like, a, uh, there's a lot of eggs in that basket. You know what I mean? Mm. So I do wonder if, you know, having somebody else at that level who is maybe, a look, you want to have a collaborative cohesive board but maybe somebody who is slightly outside of that you know um might be beneficial um but then how do people feel about toes being stamped on or or trodden on or whatever else you know Um, well i mean uh, you know i don't think this will happen but i don't think arteta and edu could have been much more vocal about Arsene Wenger and their desire to see him involved. I Listen, I don't think it will happen. I don't think Arsene's particularly keen. I don't get the sense to come back and do that. But everything they've said publicly mm. has suggested they want him involved. I mean, obviously, what you say in public and what you do in private is a different matter. But yeah. I don't know. I think they'd be open to something like that. I, but, yeah, I think it's a very slim chance. Just on the thing you mentioned before, Larson, who's at underscore Larson on Twitter, said, Hi, gents. Thoughts on the cultural review dubbed the Arsenal way, as per David Ornstein in The Athletic today? Yeah, so David's story, to sort of summarise, is basically that some consultants have brought in to help with the workplace culture at Arsenal. And to be honest, uh, and, you know, there's some language around. It's about, you know, can we recapture the Arsenal way, which has been lost? I mean, this is not, from what I understand, particularly unusual. Uh, And I think that um, morale at Arsenal among staff, and I don't mean players and coaches. I mean, you know, there's 500-odd people who work for Arsenal Mm. in all sorts of different departments. I don't think staff morale has been great over the past few years. And why would it be? Because there's been a pandemic and there's been a big swathe of redundancies through the company. And I think any company that goes through a process like that 
it does affect morale. It does affect how people feel turning up for work. Um, and so I think the club are trying to address that. And, well, they should because, you know, we want it to be a positive place for people to work. Mm. You know, those who aren't involved with the football side. And, you know, I've I've never touched wood. I've never been part of a company where people have been made redundant all around me. But I imagine it's pretty painful and, and pretty traumatic. So I'm sure there's quite a lot of work to be done to kind of repair mm-hmm. some of those wounds, you know. Yeah, look, again, I think it's a little bit like the Lacazette thing, that the context of this story coming out has played a part in how people are reacting to it. Like the idea that you want to make a nice culture for people to work in and make it a, yeah. you know, a, a happy place and, a, you know, um, happy, productive place for everybody. I don't think there's anything particularly, um, uh, what you call it, wrong with that. It's not like um, cheerleadery or whatever it might be. But I do wonder, I mean, I read it at first and it just read a little bit like an Arsblog News April Fool to me at first, <laughs> just in terms mm. of the kind of consultants that they were bringing in and they, they're going to call it this, that and the other. And um, a lot of sort of that kind of... It's all that, corporate It's all stuff, corporate you know? bullshit speak, which, you know, ultimately has to come from the owners. But whether they're capable of that themselves, I don't quite know. Like our... KSE places of work, happy places in general. I don't know. Maybe they're not. Um, I like, I don't think either. there's anything wrong with it per se, but I don't know. Surely this is some shit you'd be able to sort out yourself by, you know, treating people properly, um, doing things the right way as much as possible. Like, the club does a lot of good stuff. There's no two ways about it, but I think. You know, you can also say they've handled certain situations and done certain things over the last couple of years, which, you know, you don't need a fucking PR company to come in and tell you that that was not the right way to do it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's probably don't fair. fire a fucking dinosaur in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> How about that? That's lads? day one of the workshop. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't. Okay, need- so we're going to start and they just press click on the PowerPoint. Big picture of Gunnosaurus. I can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. Gonna, uh, yeah we're going to set him that... on fire in front of <laughs> in front of the children that support the club. Uh, yeah. Well, while we're um, hammering the club, uh, just quickly, I had this question from Joe on the Discord. Today, Monday, marks a year since the Super League announcement. Mm. This had a profound effect on my relationship with the club. I gave up my season ticket and have been following through my following my local club to scratch the football-going itch. And although I don't regret it at all, the whole episode still makes me bitter. My only real connection I still want to keep active is through Arseblog. Although I like this current team and this season has been an improvement on the pitch, notwithstanding the last few weeks, my questions are, has the football world been too quick to forget what these six clubs tried to do to the fabric and integrity of the game in this country, not to mention across Europe? especially given the rumoured new historical performance qualification rules in the Champions League potentially coming into force? And do we still want the Cronkies out as much as we did a year ago? Ooh, um, I think yes. Maybe we have forgotten or things happen so frequently and so quickly in football that like one one day's drama is another day's um, chip paper. Does that stand sure. up in in this day and age? You don't go to the uh, to the chip shop now and get your fish and chips in a in an iPad 
served to you on an iPad. <laughs> you, you used to get them in newspaper, kids. This is what used to happen. You used to get wrapped up in newspaper. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they have. It was, you know, it's something I think that that when I hear Josh Kroenke speak uh, and have heard him speak a couple of times and he's talked about it and, and this idea that, you know, they've tried to play down their part in it and, and what it meant. I mean, you were probably they there. Have. They all have. Yeah, but you were probably there. You saw, I mean, I saw the pictures, but you were probably right there at it because you, it was still in lockdown. And you were, I think, maybe working one of the games when when all the protests were outside. I mean, yeah, I mean, I went down to the protests yeah. as a fan as well. Yeah, I know, I know, Andrew Allen did also, and like, I think yes, what they tried to do to the Premier League and to the structures of English football was absolutely terrible, um, and they have been let off the hook a little bit too easily. I think this historical aspect to the Champions League is absolute bollocks as well. Anything that takes away the competitive nature of a competition is, you know, it's detrimental to the sport and the integrity of the sport. And, and you know, why should some team miss out because they did well in a season because some other team that has done well for a few years didn't do quite as well, but because they've got a bit more stature or money or star power or whatever, they get entered into the competition. That's bullshit. You know, yeah. there's no fucking two ways about that. Um as for the the Cronkies, that's an individual thing. People may or may not want them out as much as they ever did. Uh, to be fair, they have addressed certain elements of the problems that people had with them, which was the absenteeism, the sense of distance, the lack of involvement, um, which have been detrimental to the club down the years in, in different ways. Um, they've facilitated the spending of money. Josh Kroenke is more visible. Um, there's still a long, long way to go, and they're not going to convince everybody. Um, but I think what there is probably is an acceptance that there aren't too many people out there who can buy Arsenal Football Club from the Kroenkes. Mm-hmm. And that maybe some of the people who in the past might have been seen as acceptable owners are not any longer as well. And I think that's probably played a part in how how it's gone a bit quieter in terms of, of them in particular. Yeah, I mean, what uh, that's kind of my position on the, on the owners. It's all very well saying Cronky out, and I can understand a lot of the reasoning behind that, but who in? And... You know, when you look at what's happening at Chelsea, um, I don't know how much attention Arsenal fans will have paid to that, but almost every bidder has, you know, its own problems. Um, and maybe it's not a very good mm. <laughs> reason to uh, kind of be content with an owner, but I just, I don't know what the alternative is. And... I kind of am in a position where, as a fan, I almost feel like better the devil you know at this point. Mm. Um, as regards the Super League, I mean, that is... the that is. There's a lot of sticks you could beat the Cronkies with. For me, that is the major blight on their own ship is Arsenal's involvement in the Super League, which does still really not sit right with me at all. No. Um, 
And I don't buy the like, oh, it was a last minute thing. We had to decide at the last second. Pfft, don't buy that. The problem is, as long as it exists as a notion, big clubs will want to be involved with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to be want to be the club who's like, actually, we're going to stay in the Premier League. Yeah, um, like our moral principles don't go that far. Like, it's it's very much a keeping up with the Joneses exercise. And if you yeah, get enough that- of the Joneses on the other side of the fence, all the other Joneses are going to come along. And, and I have to be honest and say I would be curious to know what the fan reaction would be if the Super League happened and Arsenal elected to not be involved. Genuinely, I don't know how that would play. Like, I think some people would be like, that's great, we've taken a stand. I think plenty of others would be like, this is a disaster. Mm. Um, yeah, the Champions League reforms are bollocks, in my opinion. They've absolutely snuck that through. Basically, you know, under the cloud of the Super League, Champions League became the sort of preferred format for most fans. Better the devil you know again. But yeah, they've butchered the format. Mm. And um, fuck them. The only consolation is it may not be Arsenal's problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's a consolation, but uh, <laughs> I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from. All right. Well, look, we had better leave it there for today. Um, it's a busy week. Obviously, we've got Chelsea on Wednesday. We've got Manchester United on Saturday. We will have a preview podcast on Patreon tomorrow, looking ahead to Chelsea. We'll do something Thursday morning. Not quite sure what we'll do Thursday morning, but we'll do that in place of the regular Friday Arscast. And on Friday, we'll have a preview podcast for the Man United game on Saturday. So it's go, go, go. Action, action, action. And hopefully, uh, we'll have some uh, Arsenal these crazy things called goals if we have a few of those i think our week might be better but as ever um thank you very much indeed for listening thank you for being here and we will catch you on the next one bye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 